0: And also it made me realize that this is what I want to do for as long as I can. Like I want to serve people because I never felt bringing more value to the world before that.
1: Hi, I'm Kavalo Baroi and this is Design This Way. On today's episode, I have with me, Nidhi Singh Rathor. Nidhi is a multidisciplinary creative based out of Washington, DC. She applies design methodologies to reimagine civic infrastructure. Her value-centered practice focuses on deconstructing nebulous concepts, bringing people together and breaking down complex problems for better and equitable services. She has spent the past four years in local government, And in the last few years, she has collected a range of partners, collaborators, and clients starting from Art Center College of Design, City of Los Angeles, Stanford University, Stanford Impact Labs, to Montgomery County Government. Today, we'll deep dive into Nidhi's background, her work in civic design, and explore various aspects of governance, design ethnography, and design research. So, now... Let's welcome Nidhi. Nidhi, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Kabul. I'm so excited to be here. You've created such a great platform for people to come share their stories and journeys. And I am thrilled to be one of them.
1: Uh, Thanks for taking out your time because I know your schedule is like crazy these days. And uh, we are able to make this happen. Also, you might have to help me out in this episode because it's very far from my area of expertise. But it's also in a way very good for this podcast format because there are a lot of things to talk about, discuss and so on. So I think we'll have a great episode. But before we begin the actual discussion, uh, since we are going to talk a lot about governance and politics, I am curious about your political leanings. Where do you feel you lie on the political spectrum? Are you conservative, liberal, left moderate, socialist, capitalist, just... uh, Give us an idea of your political leanings.
0: Thank you for that question. I think I've been trying to find answer to that more intentionally in the last few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since I've been working in um, America for and more specifically local government since 2018, uh, in this country, I would identify myself as a social democrat. But in India, I'm still trying to understand where I stand and I think I'm the closest to Nehruvian secularism mm-hmm. where it talks about that how you know India needs to think of governance uh without any religion because there're just so many religions and like that diversity uh, out there so I don't I'm not well versed in Nehruvian secularism yet but that's something I'm starting to discover because that's what resonates with me the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did want to say that growing up, you know, um, we hear the words government is by the people, of the people, and for the people. Um... But recently, I've been talking about how government is people Mm -hmm. because there needs to be a symbiotic relationship between people who vote and who hold government and governance accountable versus how government needs to be more engaged with people Mm -hmm. who vote for it. So the government is people is, in short, my leaning that uh, I want... To be a part of government or I want my government to be something that works for the people. And I really like the words public servant for that matter because I'm here serving people.
1: That sounds like uh, the definition of uh, democracy in an ideal sense, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I learned that you grew up in Uttar Pradesh, uh, mostly in Lucknow and Allahabad. Uh, your parents worked for the government. How was it like growing up in Uttar Pradesh? I
0: didn't talk much about where I come from when I was younger so again it's just been a new thing um, I've started to discover as I talk about my identity more Um, but I grew up in um, Elabad and uh, I was there until I was 13. Um, I went to boarding school and then I was in and out of Lucknow when I studied in Sindhya and elabad it's uh, called Triveni because, you know, it's a juncture of uh, Saraswati, Ganga and Yamuna where you see Ganga, Yamuna, you don't see Saraswati. So there's a lot of uh, yeah. Hindu, uh, you know, uh, history in Ilabad, but also it was one of the British capitals and Jawaharlal Nehru, Indra Gandhi, Rajiv Gandhi, all of them came from elabad so it's got a really rich political history so elabad was a city where you saw politics religion and just people coming together uh, and it was it's such a you know um great mix of people and their um critical and just uh you know multifaceted identity so it was great to grow up there Uh, But also, it was fascinating to see that how we talked about politics and how politics was in our fabric as people from Allahabad and UP, but then you meet people from other parts of the country and they don't talk about politics as we did. (laughs) Uh, I remember for like, Sometime there was a Rajiv Gandhi poster uh, in our house, also. Which now that I think about it, I don't think political posters were like a thing. <laughs> uh, so I just grew up talking about politics and talking about uh, or learning about. What is it that uh, people do uh, when they are chosen for office and what they should be doing um, and had decently honest uh, conversations from a young age of like what we should be expecting from governance, because I would be asking those questions from my uh, to get answers from my parents. Um, And yeah, that way, uh, that intersectionality of identity really impacted how I became the person that I am today Um, but also I've not (laughs) been to Allahabad in a decade now and it's called Prayagraj. So I also <laughs> yeah. feel very disconnected to the reality. And it just seems like a myth.
1: They just renamed the city. And uh, I mean, I have a very close friend from Alabad. And he also uh, feels like the feeling of calling it Alabad. It's very different than, you know, uh, the city it has become in a way. Because just because of the name change, the politics change and all of that. So yeah. yeah
0: yeah and i think i also didn't uh, for a long time feel proud of where uh, i did come from because Al- alabad was like i would interchangeably say alabad elabad because <laughs> you know alabad is the uh, hindi and in, in urdu pronunciation and alabad is how it's written in uh, english yeah so <laughs> uh i didn't feel proud of like coming from a small city when like the people that i was meeting they were from you know Delhi, Bombay, Pude. So I just felt like, oh, I'm like such from a, from an insignificant city. Uh, my parents do, you know, uh, nothing of significance. Yeah. I, there was like a lot of self-doubt of my own journey as to where I come from. So um, I didn't realize how it impacted my journey for The longest time until like I left India to come to the United States. And then when I started really uh, learning about myself through the distance that I have from my country, I realized that how important all those uh, choice points were in life. Yeah.
1: And I think it makes a huge difference. There are so many uh, different Uh, flavors that India has and if you are from a different city a smaller city like I'm from Jammu and uh, for uh, people who are from smaller cities a different kind of India we grew up in than people who are from metro cities yeah Uh, well I learned another interesting fact about you and uh, that is that you decided to become a designer when you were in seventh grade (laughs) who gave you this idea and what made you decide to become a designer
0: yeah it's it's so fascinating that, you know, uh, I was just talking about how we talked about politics and we talked about like things happening um, around El then and around the country. And also, uh, I had this habit of uh, mimicking my parents because they would take take forever to read the newspaper so i would want to read the newspaper also (laughs) but i would then read the sections that were most interesting to me which were like you know the sunday uh sections more about celebrities and whatnot um so i always knew that i wanted my uh career to be something creative or something different than status quo like Uh, one option I was like oh it would be great to be a forensic scientist and like you know (laughs) just how there are different like shows where you have this like one person cooped up in a corner and helping detectives and whatnot. Um, Either it would be that or I would want to be a designer and I think I thought of designer because I didn't know what it takes to be an artist or like how does one become an artist and also the self-doubt was insane at that age. Mm-hmm. But I would read about uh, Manish Malhotra, Rito Berry, all of them being, you know, uh, in the newspaper and... you. Uh, We would watch Kanbaniga Pati and then read in the newspaper that Manish Malhotra did the wardrobe. So I was very fascinated that, (laughs) oh my God, like I'm seeing this person every day and his clothes are being picked by someone else. So that was really fascinating. And I was like, I want to do that. I wanted to be a designer because it was creative. It was different. It was just something uh, that I couldn't have think Mm -hmm. of otherwise. So... I also think the kind of person I am, I don't know what my long-term life goals are. I just know what I want to do in the next five years, in the next like three years. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that in seventh grade, I was like, in next five years, I want to be in a design college. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter like where, who, (laughs) what, none of that. Uh, And... To me, it just made sense that for me to get into a design college, I want to go to a boarding school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of like the journey made sense to me. And when I went to the boarding school, I learned that how so many other folks have tried for NID and NIFT. And um, in eighth and ninth grade, I started, sorry, ninth grade is when I went to Sindhya. So ninth and tenth grade is where I started learning as to why. NID is the best, which again, you know, uh, I think it's a bubble. My views on NID <laughs> have changed a lot. Uh, but, um, you know, then in 10th grade, I was like, okay, next two years, I want to just like clear NID, uh, mm. and I will work towards that. And I created this, uh, ecosystem around me where uh, my professors my seniors my cohort mates everyone was supporting me in uh, achieving that because I was one of the very clear uh, folks in school at that time who knew that they want to go to either an ID or NIFT and do design like uh, the clarity was really inspiring the
1: premier design schools
0: yeah Uh, But also, um, I'm always surprised when uh, people say that, oh, I just like gave the exam and I got in because I worked really hard for it. (laughs) Uh, I was like solving sample papers for one year, one and a half Mm. year, because the thought of not getting NID or not getting into NIF or essentially the thought of me not doing design was just unbearable to me because at that point for the five, for the, past five years had just been working on that so I just wanted to get in and I did get in I got in both and again because my parents worked for the government, like, again, we had no one who went to design schools <laughs> and, like, we had no one who had been in this space. Yeah. So my mom was like, well, it sounds like NIFT is more famous, so you should go to NIFT. <laughs> no one knows about NID. Uh, and I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> I think NID is better. And then uh, what happened was my principal of from Sindhya, she called to congratulate me on my mom's phone And my mom ended up talking to her about like, oh, she's gotten into both. I think I want to like uh, push her to go to NIFT. And my principal from that, uh, from Sindha was like, <laughs> no, wait. You need to send her to NID. <laughs> and that's what pivoted my, you know, parents thinking around like, okay, fine, you can go to NID. Uh but if there was no interference, my life would have been very different because I would have been at NIFT.
1: Yeah. I mean, NID so, has much more than just uh, fashion and uh, it's 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 also I mean, I've talked about NID so much on this podcast that people can definitely listen to any episode where any NID alumni has been on the podcast. So they can check out and it's a great institute, uh, has a history, you know, as, and also as you said, it is a bubble. But uh, I learned that you uh, did your graduation in textile design. You started like that, but then you pivoted to visual communication. Uh, let's talk about that. How did that happen?
0: Yeah, so I joined NID thinking that I'll be doing textile design because as I was talking about earlier, my inspirations were like Manishman Lothra and Ritu Berry and like folks that were uh, working with uh, apparel. But also when I got into NID, I saw a very different side of textiles, which is incredibly hard and great, but it just didn't seem like the version that I had in my head. Uh, And with foundation courses, um, you know, um, I just seemed more uh, inclined towards visual communication because they were just more fun. But also for a hot second, I wanted to do film and video communication because I love cinema. And so I don't even remember what was the whole logic of like moving from one to another. But it was it. It's a part of my journey that I should really look back to more intentionally because when I gave my NID interview, I wore something that I had made that I had embroidered because I really wanted to communicate the, you know, uh, willingness to be a textile designer mm-hmm. and like be into textiles. But I made such a hard pivot and went into graphic design. <laughs> uh, but it was, you know, a decade back, so I don't even remember what were the things going into. My 17-year-old brain when I was making that switch.
1: <laughs> yeah, we we all have those decisions. So after NID, you interned and worked at Microsoft briefly, and then after that, you decided to pursue your post-graduation from Art Center College of Design from the USA. How did that entire decision come about? Because I, as far as I know, that that's where you kind of shifted. Uh, your focus from visual design to something entirely different?
0: Yeah, so in my last year of uh, my bachelor's I was working on a project with the, let's say a national bank pri- national private bank I'm not sure if I can like say the name uh, and it was an information and graphic user interface design because that's what we were calling UI UX <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, at that point um but it was an NID sponsored project so I was on campus uh we didn't have a big uh you know, user experience or graphical user interface design team. I was just doing a lot of information architecture and research on my own. Um, And that, uh, I I obviously talked to a lot of uh, seniors and uh, folks from different disciplines um, who were at NID at that time so that I can learn from them. And as I was learning from them, I started loving the background in, uh, information building, the mm-hmm. of apps and websites because I was like, this is crazy interesting.
1: Huh. Um, I think it uh, it happens that there's a lot of systems thinking in that, yeah. Which I think for a designer, we love organizing yeah. things
0: and yeah. So because I was doing all of that on my own. Um, it just made sense to then go to a place where I could learn from people as to what are the industry specifics and why we ha- we make certain decisions that we make. Um, and yeah, so I interned at Microsoft and ended up working there for almost two years. Um, but also, I realized that The thinking that I was doing um, in my grad level uh, ended up decreasing over time at Microsoft because then there were people who were doing that thinking for you, not you as a designer in a big company, you were just designing interface, which is fine and great. But I didn't get to do a lot of um, uh, intellectually stimulating work because I was often making graphics and very surface level system stuff um so i essentially had you know everything where i was getting good pay i h- had access to so much like resources and <laughs> lifestyle was good for like an early 20 uh, person but i just wasn't feeling happy and content mm-hmm. um and it sounded incredibly stupid at that point but i was like i think i need to leave this and do something that will make me happy Uh, Without knowing what will make me happy. (laughs) Uh, So even though I had like been thinking that I will be leaving Microsoft for college, I ended up leaving Microsoft way before I got my college confirmations and things. And then I ended up going to college a year after I left Microsoft. Because it just felt like uh, it was too stable. It was too uh, plain uh, as a journey map. Like, you know... uh, That doesn't make sense, really. (laughs) Uh, For instance, if a learning uh, curve, like you want your learning curve to be going up constantly. Mm -hmm. uh, But I just felt like I plateaued Mm -hmm. at Microsoft and my work wasn't improving. And at a point I saw that I was putting less effort into my work and my work was about to be like declining Because that's how less attachment I had to my work. And uh, it seemed like a breakup where I was like, you're not the problem. I'm the problem. (laughs) I I just don't know what's happening to me. I'm just getting worse. I just want to leave when I am good enough so that if I want to come back, I can come back. (laughs) And that's how I left Microsoft.
1: But how did Art Center College of Design happen? Like why that specific college and what was your post-graduation specialization in?
0: Yeah, so I spent a good year in just researching courses and I had, you know, an Excel sheet of like these are the colleges I want to apply to for these reasons and these are the people that I know who have gone there and I would do like informational interviews with all these folks of like what was your experience this is another college that I'm considering what do you think about that so either e- it was emails or getting coffees with people but I really wanted to be 120% sure <laughs> of which college I'm applying to um, and why I want to go there because it's a big investment if I'm putting all that money into grad education I just want to be as sure as a human can be as to why I'm doing it. I do not want to regret. Um, Hmm. And Art Center, the course that I did was media design practices. Uh, Mm -hmm. And when I had applied, it had uh, two specializations specifically. One was lab design and the other was field. So lab is more, you know, contemporary AR, VR, AI, all that stuff. I was interested in field design where... Uh, you know, it was all about fieldwork, design ethnography, engaging with people, working on the field, uh, learning Mm -hmm. interview and workshop methods. And also, uh, out of the four terms that you will be on campus, one term was in another country. So for um, us, we went to Mexico and Mexico City and other uh, places. Uh, But before that, uh, the course also took students to Uganda. And often like this partnership, of taking students to another country was in conjunction with unicef Mm -hmm. so that was incredibly interesting um to me because i recognize that uh you know in india if you're researching which part of the country you're researching and uh creating for differs because the people are so different right and it was really interesting to me to, you know, um, I come from India, which is such a diverse country, I would get to do research in US and also get an opportunity to go to Mexico and understand another country. Uh, And with teachers, I will get to experience as to how to shift my research methods and tools. Um, And I wanted to have that learning because I thought that in an ideal future, I would be traveling around the world and like doing research work and design work. Sounds
1: like a dream.
0: I am not that person anymore, but...
1: <laughs> I am still that person, but I don't get to. So anyway.
0: Yeah, I started to hate flying. So that's why I'm not that person anymore. <laughs> I would still love to do that if there was teleportation, but... Um...
1: But like since you mentioned uh, uh, design research yeah. and that was something that uh, you were getting to uh, practice at uh, art center... Uh, Tell us about what design research means because see uh, why am I asking this is because uh, till now I haven't had a guest on the podcast who is specifically into something like this you know and uh, we all do like graphic designers and branding people we all do design research but we do it with the intention of an output that we create and probably most of the times 25 to 50 percent of the work is design research in our context and rest of it is craft and that's where we spend time i am guessing that when you are doing design thinking design research all of those things kind of like uh, 70 to 90 percent must be uh, the research part or the development part the thinking part right what does this mean? Like, what does design research mean if you have to tell somebody who is probably <laughs> 17 or 18 and still in college, you know?
0: Yeah, I don't know if I can put, like, a number as to, like, what would what part of my process um, as a design researcher would be research versus how much would it be craft and things like that. Um, but my definition for design research is that it's a combination of uh, methods that are either defined or that you are creating to understand a subject that's incredibly nebulous, incredibly naughty, like K-N-O-T-T-Y, naughty. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's an issue that you're not able to understand from any other tools because it's not linear enough. And that's, you know, most of the problems in the world, like all systemic um, and process problems are, you know, they lead to more problems. uh, And it's always, um, you need different tools and different methods to unpack uh, these challenges because all challenges are slightly different. Just because people are different and people are complicated, the challenges that surround them are complicated. So design research to me means that I'm using uh, different tools, some I will be creating on my own. And that's why I end up creating a lot of workshops and ideation sessions, versus some are just journey mapping and thing and interviewing techniques that you can use uh, repeatedly. So for me, design research is the crux of understanding why is this happening? Mm -hmm. And then getting to understand uh, what the solution or like what the uh, how we can test an intervention to change the circumstances and conditions of that particular challenge to then, you know, remove that challenge specifically from uh, the current system.
1: Um, your thesis project at Art Center was uh, this project that you did, um, Network by Desire. You try to question the nature of hidden cyber economies. Um, let's talk about this project and. Uh, what were your learnings from working on this project, and how did uh, the things you learned at Art Center helped you make it?
0: Yeah, this project is one of the favorite things ever that I've created, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's just such uh, an illustration of how design research can be used for um, art and how you can research to create art and for me at least um the network by desire was um about imagining this uh reality this alternate reality uh, where people in south asia and southeast asia are creating fake profiles as part of their uh you know uh, manual and digital labor world and you know, fabricating the reality that that we see in the Western world of people joining Facebook and Twitter and just the influence of, um, you know, South Asians or like more specifically colonized countries in uh, Western world where Silicon Valley thinks that it controls the internet. But actually, internet is made up Of so many of these fake profiles that are then made by countries that they think are not, you know, their primary customers. So it was this whole thing about um, hidden economies, where um, you know how your data is sold, who buys your data, who sells your data, uh, how your data is processed, how your data processes on the internet. Uh, versus, like, if I were to make a fake profile on Twitter, what it would take to do that. And it was a year-long thesis where I started with studying what does uh, propaganda, political propaganda, look like Mm -hmm. on the Internet Mm -hmm. uh, and soon realized that, oh, wait, uh, Internet is a manifestation of our real life. And if propaganda exists in real life, it will exist on the Internet also. But within that, what fascinated me the most is how less we know about click farms, account farms, and like just the people who are, uh, as I said, fabricating the realities of the internet that we see. Um, (laughs) And the fact that our frame of reference of internet is just so small, uh, whereas actually internet is so big, so dark, so nebulous. So it was really interesting to get into that world. And the duality of, like, how Eastern world sees uh, internet versus Western, it just, it's so interesting to me because, you know, um, in India, we see the grey very well and we, you know, we live in it just fine. But often in Western world, we only see black and white. So for people to see as to, like, how creating... A fake profile is livelihood. It's really difficult for folks to comprehend that. But as someone who grew up in India, who's seen people making money uh, as and using every other thing as an opportunity just made sense to me. (laughs) So, uh, you know, the project was about how this device would look when it's designed for someone who's putting in the labor to create uh, fake profiles. Like, for instance, it will only be affordance and, like, you know, uh, speed-based. It will not be an ergonomic device because no one cares of, like, how labor <laughs> feels. Um, it will be a clunky thing. It it might be stuck in time. So it had a very uh, retro feel to its graphics and to its, you know, um, just design. And also, I chose... Uh, Bangladesh as the hub of like where this world was situated for me because I wanted to imagine a space that I don't know a lot about so I just would spend hours on uh, google maps just seeing like you know gullies of Bangladesh and see that lifestyle but what was most interesting about this project in terms of design research is that I started looking at uh, digital design ethnography, uh, where I started to, uh, you know, uh, understand as to like how as design ethnographers, if we are looking at, um, at di- digital spaces, we need to also look at the code of these websites and tools. Like we can't just look at the front end. Mm-hmm. We also have to look at the back end uh, of digital spaces to really dive into uh, the ethnography
1: can you define design ethnography for people who do not or haven't encountered this word before
0: yeah this word comes with so much weight for me lately because i also recognize that anthropology ethnography these are words that uh colonists used to study indigenous culture of places and also like you know colonize um
1: but that's with uh, every major human endeavor these days i mean you look at medicine modern medicine you look at uh, sociology or anything yeah There, there has been a brutal history of all the things but that doesn't mean that those endeavors like do not have value in modern times
0: oh yeah yeah i was i was actually talking about that with friends of mine um just this weekend um I think there's this so that's why I say that these words come with weight but also uh my practice lately has been around understanding my positionality and power that like come and power and privilege that comes with the position that I'm in so me recognizing that ethnography was once used uh to marginalize people is really important and then um you were talking about medical spaces and uh, I'm doing a project on uh, cancer clinical trials. This is uh, my second project. So, studying that space also, I completely recognize that how most of the spaces have been uh, so, you know, um, exclusionary. Uh, so, that's why me establishing that I recognize that how these words come with privilege is really important to where I stand now because again I don't want people to just hear me say design ethnography and don't you know recognize that uh, either I or they should also recognize the weight of these words um, mm-hmm. but yeah ethnography it comes from just like um, deep emotion um, in your either subject or field and just like observing so you know few design tools that we talk about like uh, journaling, shadowing, and things like that. They are ethnographic practices where, like, you live in your field for a long time. Uh, And design ethnography, again, it's more about a mix of design methods, but also ethnography methods of, like, being in one's field and, like, spending a lot of time uh, on there while also engaging with their subjects in different manners. So, for instance, design ethnography for me... Uh, was about, you know, learning about these Mexican women when I was uh, in Mexico uh, doing my project La Fabula de las Faldas, which means the stories of the skirts. Uh, so this project is when um, I was still a, uh, an art center student, but we can call it like a mini thesis because the whole term was dedicated to this project. And. Um, Initially, I wanted to study how uh, women and young girls from Central America are traveling through Mexico to then come to America uh, and Mm -hmm. what's making uh, them take this long journey, which was, you know, um, it was a part of the more idealist and less real uh person in me who just thought that it would be easy to meet uh people who are, you know, fleeing violence because in my head I didn't like think about the reality really. But when I was in Mexico and I met organizations that, you know, work with young women and provide them safe havens so that they can, you know, have a uh, safe and secure lives and they can like move Uh, through Mexico, in a secure manner, I started learning as like how difficult it would be. But the crux of that project was me understanding the impact of uh, immigration on women and young women and girls um, of Central America. And through those interactions, I realized that there are stories to tell of women that are left behind because so many people in Mexico are leaving their communities, their towns and villages, that the women who are left behind to hold back the forts and like, uh, make the community survive, their stories are also legitimate and are stories that are no- not told ever. So in this project, uh, I learned from one of the field... Uh, Uh, visits that it was a group field visit uh, where I learned that women in Central America from you know ages ago have been using skirts to tell their stories so when you go if you see Mexican skirts every different state uh, has their own type of skirts that's because women uh, communicate their stories and their uh life through the skirts that they are wearing so uh traditionally they would have you know uh motifs that would talk about if they are married or single or like what kind of uh flowers are in their village you know really telling the story of who they are where they come from um and as i learned that story i thought that it would be great if i could use skirts as a mode to talk about and unearth the journey that their closed ones took to leave the country and come to us um and how did that impact their lives so it took a bunch of trials like every other week i was <laughs> redoing my interview and workshop uh, processes and like rethinking as to like how i can learn the stories uh but at the end of it we used um like uh, I made stamps by hand and I had, you know, a script of uh, here's an open form of a skirt. Uh, you have four options of like you could be a bird or a butterfly or a hare or this. I forget the fourth one. Um, pick one um, element or sorry, one animal and talk about why you pick this animal to be yourself Uh, And then, you know, we get into the details of uh, this is where you stamp, this is where you are, what is around you. So they either describe, you know, um, their children or their uh, house using other different stamps. And then they stamp the uh, at the end of the skirt of like, who was the person who went to the US uh, why did you pick this animal for them and then we track the journey so we established you know the starting point and the end point then the journey and challenges so it was essentially journey mapping but through storytelling and really heavily understanding uh, how one would talk about uh, you know the uh, the difficulties uh, that one has to go through when uh, their son daughter or husband's move to another country and when the process itself is so hard right so that's what the project was about and it just uh helped me grow up so much as a researcher because i didn't know spanish i had a translator there were times where like you know you uh you couldn't be perfect uh, in as, like, you were taking the interview because, first of all, you need a translator to, like, tell you what your participant and, like... Um. Also, I think
1: uh, Mexico has a lot of dialects too. Spanish is uh, not the only language. There are so many dialects that people, especially uh, in uh, rural Mexico, they use different uh, dialects and it's not easy to translate. Yeah, right?
0: yeah, and it, like... It's hard to talk about, you know, uh, your daughter leaving and you're not, like, seeing her. I remember this one, like, uh, almost all of them cried during their interviews. Um, They wanted to keep their skirts as, like, a memory of, like, oh, this is about my relationship with my daughter and, like, my husband, my son. Mm -hmm. It was just so rich with emotion that... uh, and obviously, it was in a village, so it was uh, me. The main project was in the village, so it's just so funny that I had to uh, climb a hill to actually get phone network to then make a phone call because there was no network anywhere. Oh. Um, wow! And it was so it was so lovely, but also there was, it was such a small village that. They took me to a wedding. I just, like, lived there for a couple of days. And I was, like, eating, drinking with them. And it was it was great. Uh, and, yeah, just when you s- get to experience that life, uh, that's when you start reflecting on, like, how, as a uh, researcher, you need to, like, shift your ways to then, like, uh, match the people that you're interacting with and how you interact with them. Right. So... It was, uh, especially when you don't speak their language. So, yeah. like, <laughs> for instance, one of the thing, like, the first uh, workshop that I had with them, as a joke, I said, my name's Nidhi, and they were, like, very, uh, you know... Uh, They were very confused. It's like how to say Nidhi and I could like sense it. I'm like, oh, but you can like call me whatever. And these like 60 year old uh, Mexican women, they're like, oh, we're going to call you Rosita. And I'm like, yeah, sure. (laughs) So the whole village just knew me as Rosita. And I'm like, this is a great place to flee when I learn Spanish (laughs) because no one knows me as Nidhi here. But it was just so great as they like just took me in
1: also like i think uh, it's interesting uh, that uh, when you take such a heavy topic and you are able to translate that into something that's uh, humanistic and that people can visually see the storytelling data can only reveal uh, quantitative things but the emotions and all those other things design can help us bring out
0: yeah that is so accurate i've been always like fascinated by the relationship between qualitative and quantitative data. And it's been more about how I use quantitative data to talk about my qualitative learnings, because like, m- most often we uh, don't uh, get people who want to pay attention to qualitativeness in studies. So uh within this also i think uh just the question of like ethics and like when even when you're telling stories of other people like why am i the one who gets to use these stories and not these like vi- not the women who want to tell their stories has been like a big part of uh, my retrospective on this project yeah. but also I have these like recordings from them where they wanted someone to like. They have been engaging in all kinds of material to tell their stories so that more people know about them. So I was one of the avenues that they chose to tell their stories to the world. Um, they call themselves Cinco Senoras from La Preciosita, and uh,
1: Cinco is uh, five.
0: Five, yeah.
1: Five women from
0: La Preciosita. It's a, it's a town, uh, I think it's called The Precious, like La Preciosita, uh, uh-huh. uh is The Precious. The precious. Uh, and um, mm. it's a small town, uh, four or five hours outside of Mexico City, but very different. And, uh, you know, um, I didn't think so much about the ethics of like storytelling when I was doing this project, but uh, recently I was thinking I'm like hey I wrote a paper about this project and uh should I be talking about this project more because it's so attached uh to my identity in terms of like the learnings that um I gained from it and I was just completely blank because I was like I don't know where I stand with this like is it ethical to talk about this right now when it's been so many years
1: I get what you're saying
0: um yeah
1: Sometimes you feel like uh, it's it's the nature of the world that you end up having to do this work rather than you wanting somebody from the community to do that work. Isn't it? Yeah. Like it's just the nature of the world sometimes.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I think we'll get to it in a minute when I start talking about my current practice because I think that's where now (laughs) I'm headed of like how can I work with community where I'm just a tool, I'm just a facilitator. And... Mm. I'm just like there to support them. But they are the ones Mm. leading the work. Uh, But we'll get to it in a minute.
1: We'll get to that. So let's talk about your first encounter with civic design. Also, please explain us what civic design involves, you know. (laughs) All these terms are so new. I understand the terms. I understand individual parts. But when they are put together, I think they synthesize something that I probably haven't thought about, you
0: know. Yeah, I think civic designers often don't have the time and space to talk about what civic design is. So that's also one reason as to why people don't know what civic design is. Um, Hmm. But uh, to start from your first question as to what was my uh, introduction to this field, um, I have to reflect on the fact that when I was like 19, 20, I was like, you know what, it would be so cool that I could do if I could do design stuff, but in government to make people's life better. Like I knew that in my life, I want to do work that has a social impact. Um, I was always gravitating towards such work. Um, I was always gravitating towards work that had deeper purpose. Um, But I just didn't know how to get into it. And I was like, Would it be possible for me to have a design degree and then give a UPSC exam or something where I become an IAS but like have a design understanding? (laughs) Um,
1: Do we have a designer IAS officer in our country? Do we?
0: I have no idea. My mom really pushed me until last year and now she's like you've lost the like you know time limit.
1: (laughs) But you might have said no also because it's also a stereotype for people from Uttar Pradesh. (laughs) That they love you, (laughs) 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 PSC.
0: I'm so sorry for bringing this up, though. No, that is a stereotype. I mean, I am such a stereotypical person. Like, um, I hate stereotypes myself, but I am that Indian who does yoga, who loves, like, who always like smells of masalas, <laughs> like, you know. Uh, so yeah, I am the most UP person ever who, you know, considered to become an IS at one point of her life. Uh, but again, I just didn't know how that would look. So um in uh, grad school. So this is right after I came back from uh, Mexico. And uh, Art Center has this uh, nonprofit uh, section of their practice where it's called Design Matters uh, at Art Center College of Design. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Design Matters gives uh, annual fellowships and actually not just annual, they uh, give fellowships uh, with uh, on a rolling basis I
1: want to uh, interject here that uh, design matters is also an amazing podcast which is separate from this uh, that podcast is by Debbie Millman uh, anyways
0: yes that is correct um, so <laughs> which is separate from this yes <laughs> um, so design matters at art center it does partnerships with local and international and uh, and like just different organizations that want to uh, indulge in social innovation space so it could look like a transdisciplinary studio or it could look like a fellowship where you know there is one student working recently I've also been mentoring design matters fellows so currently we have three fellows on one project so the nature of it uh, changes but essentially It was a paid fellowship. Um, I had to do something over the summer uh, Mm -hmm. and I went and interviewed for um, the Los Angeles I team. Um, And essentially they were looking for someone who had a strong research background. Uh, And because I had just finished work in Mexico, um, like city and otherwise like other towns in Mexico, it just made sense for them to be like, oh, out of everyone who seemed the most compatible with the kind of work that we want to do. And that's how I came into that space. Um, we were going to work on homelessness and housing initiatives uh, and like Mayo's Challenge more specifically. Mm-hmm. So just they needed someone with a grasp on research methods. Oh, OK, uh, because for them to apply for the mayor's challenge grant it's a three step process of like how you might earn the reward of like 1 million to 5 millions but mm-hmm. um essentially in the second stage you do need to do research um and for that they wanted a fellow because their own designer was busy with other projects so mm-hmm. that's where i stepped in um got it and after that job <laughs> Or like the whole summer of it was 14 weeks. Out of the 14 weeks, um, I designed seven sessions with seven different, uh, for the lack of words, stakeholders uh, in like about, Mm -hmm. you know, eight uh, out of the 14 weeks, eight weeks were just sessions. Every other week, we were designing new sessions and meeting with new people. Um, People uh, included... Government employees, people who have houses in LA, like homeowners, uh, people who have specifically accessory dwelling units, which are also called backyard homes or granny flats. They're essentially like smaller flats uh, in uh, in the backside or uh, on the, essentially on your plot of uh, your house and your land. So um. homeowners that have uh, ADUs uh, or backyard homes, then individuals who have experienced homelessness, uh, two sessions with uh, case managers and service coordinators who work with individuals who uh, experience homelessness. And every week we were learning more about the uh, criticality of, uh, you know, uh, what it means to be, Homeless. What are the needs and, you know, how ADUs and backyard homes can be leveraged to create housing uh, prospects for people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and right at the end of it, we wrote a grant application. I think we submitted it like August 17th or 18th. And I remember that because it was the last day of my um, of my fellowship that we put in the grant to then gain more money from uh, Bloomberg Meos Challenge uh, to do this experiment for three years where mm-hmm. we would, you know, uh, what we are proposing of like, we've done the research, we know ADUs can be used, now give us money so that for the next three years, we actually can do this and create a prototype with, on which the government is ready to invest money and it becomes a program. So mm-hmm. that was the whole space. And I just got such incredible amount of freedom to design the sessions that we were designing. um Because we were not just doing journey mapping, like we were, you know, for one of the sessions, we when we are service coordinators of like, let's create a personality type of uh, homeowners in or like landlords in LA. So they had to think specifically about Uh, People who are on the verge of homelessness, they file for certain housing vouchers and then they are, uh, you know, attached to uh, landlords who are willing to, you know, get subsidies from the government. We wanted to hear from these uh, coordinators as to like, who are these landlords? What are their personalities? And everyone was like, they are evil. All they want is money. They don't want to help people. And, you know, there was just like so much... (laughs) um angst because again like people who work as case managers with uh, individuals experiencing homelessness right now they are often people who have experienced homelessness at some point of time so uh, especially people working with youth because you know foster homes and then from mm-hmm. foster mm-hmm. homes you're like 18 and out on your own so if you don't have something lined up you end up on the street so all of that really Help me understand as to how design can be used. I
1: think uh, people around the world, um, we have just heard about homelessness uh, in America. Uh, but when I went there, especially around Vegas, around LA, the homelessness crisis is crazy. It was even New York for that sake. And it's very different from homelessness as we see in India. It's so different. It's not a problem of less wealth uh, that the nation ha- doesn't have so that it could... Uh, helped homeless people it seems like it's an intention problem at the end of it but anyways tell us about your
0: experience um when i was living in bombay when um i had applied for art center again because as i said i uh, ended up coming uh, a year later than i initially intended um and i directly landed in los angeles i had come um two or three weeks before the term started because I was also taking workshops. So I was uh, staying with a friend because my uh, roommates or like my people who would be my roommates were not in the city yet. I didn't have, you know, a permanent space. So I was taking workshops, meeting people who I'd known from India. Uh, So when I started going around, I I was just like, why are there so many sirens and like, why are there people living on the street? I was like, this is not what you see on the <laughs> on in like movies and things like this is this is very different from uh, what LA looks like for people. And
1: yeah, also like the neighborhoods of LA, like uh, you go to downtown, it's like there's so much of homelessness. If you go to, let's say, uh I mean, the Hollywood area, it's like totally different. You go to... That
0: also starts to talk about the inequities in neighborhoods itself across Los Angeles. Um So often uh, people experiencing homelessness we refer to them as unhoused neighbors because you know people don't want to leave their neighborhoods but because of gentrification they are also not able to afford uh, the houses that they were living in Uh, their houses become like condos or like real estate uh, prices are insane so people have to leave their houses but they have lived in those places for like 30 years 40 years and you know um yeah, yeah they just can't imagine their life anywhere else um and for that matter uh often you know um in la like a lot of people migrate towards downtown also because they would just find more services uh for uh individuals experiencing homelessness around there so it's very uh complicated but i think what i learned um the the biggest learning of this process of like mayo's challenge and working on this project was understanding that how homelessness is a systemic issue that Mm -hmm. you know other real estate prices are rising but uh, no one's uh you know ready to pay their employees the wages that they can actually afford a lifestyle
1: Mm. that la Mm. demands
0: out of people so either people do do like three jobs four jobs or they just like you know they're not able to afford uh the prices of rent and like housing and also um it's uh everything else like again systemically uh if you have debt like medical debts like if something happened to you or your family members all your money just get like spent on that and then you're suddenly like i have no money that's
1: another nuance of living in america
0: yeah yeah so it's just so complicated but also um what the general narrative around homelessness is just so biased The status quo is like, oh, they made bad decisions in life, like individuals made bad decisions, or they have a history of substance abuse and that's why they are on the street, or they have mental health issues and that's why they are on the street. But actually, that's not uh, either fair or true uh, because, you know, there are just so many stories of like people not being able to manage either their grad school fees and then they like decided to live in their cars because they'd rather attend college than have uh, ha- like rent a place or, you know, other critical things that I want to pay alimony so my kid is supported rather than I pay rent and my kid is not supported. So these decisions and stories are so complicated and they need to be humanized. So that's where I recognize that um, just the ways that I was able to engage with people during Mio's challenge through the research tools that we were crafting. Uh, We were able to, uh, or at least as people working on the project, really uh, were able to have a critical conversation about humanizing homelessness and humanizing as to like, why and how someone can live on your uh, property. And it's completely fine for people to do that. Um, And also realize that because there's so many programs out there in the US that where landlords might be into uh, programs to like sup- which are technically to support unhoused uh, individuals. they become a part of that for money, for subsidies mm. and not for people. I so- was
1: going to come to that because that that has been one of the biggest criticism uh, of California governance. Uh, this is one of the biggest criticism that red state people have told me. Uh, this this is my experience that they they say that a lot of these programs that the government end up creating it kind of helps uh, the people who already have money but not the end user because of the way the uh, things are crafted
0: i think um that's a valid perspective for someone to have i just think that uh, some systems are designed in an exclusionary manner. And for that reason, we need to redesign them. And that's essentially my job as a civic <laughs> designer. Mm. Uh, Interesting. And that's why I take this work incredibly seriously. Uh, and, you know, it brings so much value to my life because it's very easy to be outside and say that, oh, government designed this program in this way. And it helps the people who already have the money. Yeah, but, you know, we didn't have enough participation from outside. And that's why earlier when I was saying in our conversation that government is people, that's where, you know, I think if you think government is creating programs that are benefiting only one group, you have to uh, talk to your uh, local council, your local city, but also... (laughs) You know, um, LA identified a parking lot area a couple of years back in a neighborhood to say that, oh, we'll bring, uh, we'll build uh, transitioning housing over here. Uh, and transition housing mean that people get to, like, live there for 30 days or so. Uh, they have a bed and then they can, like, find housing. Mm-hmm. 30 days is never enough. But still, Um LA government decided that and everyone near that parking area and in that neighborhood opposed it. No one wanted transition housing in their neighborhood. So when people complain about that government is creating programs that are not benefiting uh people who are in the at the end of the problem, they're also often not talking about how people themselves are creating conditions for government to be not successful. Mm. Because no matter what you do, (laughs) government structures are going to get hate. Uh, But there are other ways to engage with uh, people uh, within the government structure to figure out a middle uh, ground. And I think that's uh, lacking just not in uh, American government space but also in uh, India and I feel like the world is getting more polarized mm-hmm. and for that matter we are not able to find middle grounds in our policies and our work in our programs just right. as a whole.
1: So how was the output of this like and I also learned that you were in LA during the time of COVID. Yeah. What was that experience like? Oh Sounds my- like a very um, uh, scary situation because if i were to choose where i would be during that time i would choose india over california any day because how expensive it is to live there plus on the top of it the restrictions on the top of it the chaos that was happening during that time in uh, california and
0: so on. yeah so while mayo's challenge really helped me recognize the skills i can bring to local governance uh We also, you know, submitted uh, our grant and we got uh, selected for a 1 million um, investment from Bloomberg Philanthropies. Uh, And just so happens that I ended up uh, rejoining the team when we were building uh, this program. Uh, This program is called LA uh, ADU Accelerator Program. It's it's a mouthful, but, uh, you know, we... um, created. Um, I was part of the team uh, that was working on uh, making this uh, a reality. And because I had done research and like, well, uh I knew the background of this program, I was uh, emotionally invested. So just how like we were doing branding and how we wanted to reach out to people, I was very, you know, insistent that we had to create a branding that makes people realize that this is not just another government program because i also think that government has such a branding issue where you know things uh just get use they they come in front of you and you just like not see them or you just like completely miss out on good things because yeah. government don't doesn't have enough resources to you know snatch things up so we just wanted to make sure that everything that we are doing in this project, uh, which is the, we called it Ladwap, <laughs> uh, everything that we're doing in Ladoop, um, we wanted to be very mindful, but also all the design was happening in like, um, I would use uh, Illustrator for obviously illustrations, but all the compositing was happening in Google Docs and Google Slides. So at the end of it, anyone uh, could edit, you know, flyers and we would have uh, different versions of it. Um, And I think it's at the end of its three-year mark. And yeah, the program director is just so amazing. Um, We'll obviously have links uh, in the podcast bio. Yeah. So people can look out for it, but also the most valuable thing is that people actually got housing. Mm. Uh, We ended up focusing on senior adults um, when we got the funding because uh, senior adults are more vulnerable to uh, housing... risks because again they had been like making money from when you know uh living standards of la were different and they might not have enough money Mm. to like really uh sustain themselves in the future so helping them really helps us you know uh get uh housing for folks who could become homeless uh, or, like, unhoused. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there are stories on the website link that I'll share that people can read because we also collected stories and quotes from the people who got housing and who were also able to house them. So there's no other feeling than to see that you researched and then, like, designed and you were a part of a program that actually got someone... uh, Shelter, right? Uh, and it just feels so great, it's the best. And you know, during research, also, it, there was this one moment where we had done a session with unhoused individuals, and a person after the session came and hugged me like, they asked my permission, and they were like, I f- felt so welcomed and heard. And I feel like that is one of the moments that I look back at when I think of like how. Uh, the work that I do made someone feel seen by their government. And it just, it was, it's beyond anything. Um, And that feeling really, uh, you know, um, accelerated during COVID because um, when obviously LA is a big city, big county, uh, complicated space, uh, you know, every neighborhood looks different. So...
1: One of the most populated county, right? In America.
0: Yes. Um, So our team, the innovation team, we had data scientists and we have designers. So uh, also we reported to the chief innovation officer. So she was leading a lot of the COVID um, COVID response in Los Angeles. Uh, So we in part of like, you know, reporting to her were a part of a lot of uh, work that was happening. Um, but I've, I, so I've not been to India in the past four years. And the, that's also the reason because, uh, when COVID was happening, people were flying back to India and I didn't even feel right thinking that I could like leave the country that like, I could leave LA. Because I was serving these people and Mm -hmm. from day one, and it just felt like I need to stay here to serve people. Um, Mm -hmm. And that responsibility came from us uh, doing uh, data studies and tracking outreach with other departments. Uh, We were creating programs uh, so fast that people would make like rough uh, diagrams of like how we'll deliver to senior adults and how we can like get food to people who live alone but are 60 and over um that i remember uh, i would be uh, talking with people and making flowcharts of how these services will look so really visualizing how we will be delivering programs which was really um interesting because um you know, for us to get funding at, you know, we need funding right now. We have to communicate the idea that we need funding for to make an impact in the city. Um, and not everyone had the tools to com- make that communication clear. So as designers, we were stepping in and supporting the teams that wanted funding for senior adults or like to get more volunteers to communicate what uh, volunteership would look like. We were helping them really uh, break down information gaps and like, uh, address them. Um, also, um, I was part of the we created uh, data reports, daily data reports that had numbers of like, uh, how many people got COVID in the country, in the county, in the city, how many deaths happen? What's the, you know, you uh, cumulative hmm. number of cases looking like and this
1: was uh, you with uh, which organization sorry sorry
0: oh yes uh, this is all like all the work that i did in los angeles was with los angeles innovation team okay that i interned with during Mios challenge and then i joined them um yeah so there's just so many examples that i can talk about within covid but also uh, i would like to highlight that Uh, I want to share like just one more and then we are done that um, we had, uh, you know, LA County would put out these notes of like, okay, these services are open. These services are not open in LA County. And it was very confusing for people. Mm. (laughs) And like people didn't know Mm -hmm. how, what is open, what's not open, things were changing every other week based on like how the numbers were. So yeah. LA City would release a simpler one page or version of the county's like mm. complicated messaging to then tell people that this is red, this is green, this is yellow, that sort of a thing. Um mm. and you mm. know, mm. that's mm. where information design really um came in. Um and everything was being designed in Google Docs at this point because we needed multiple people to edit them. Mm. So I really uh recognized my privilege of like oh if I like make things in illustrator I'm actively uh putting others out of my process and like actively you know saying that I can I'm the only one who is the owner of this project and like thing so COVID changed me in that way like it really helped me recognize who I am who I'm serving how I'm serving how can I create uh Uh, artifacts that are shared by everyone so and also it made me realize that this is what I want to do for as long as I can like I want to serve people because uh, I never felt bringing more uh, value to uh, the world uh, before that which was again I had the privilege to have a job privilege to have uh, you know shelter and just access to resources which a lot of people didn't have but um, it felt right. good to be using those resources and that privilege to actually serve people. Um, and yeah, that's why I'm still in local government.
1: <laughs> yeah, right now you're working with uh, Montgomery County in Maryland State. Um, so what made you join that county and uh, work with them? Uh, and uh, what does your everyday role look like now?
0: My everyday role, it's so complicated yet easy in the sense that last week I didn't design anything or like did I felt like I didn't do anything because I was just like managing a lot of projects and things so emails and teams and Mm -hmm. I think um that's a summary of what things might look like in the sense that they are different based on what I'm working on who I'm working with um I joined them um June 2021 so I had been living and working in Pasadena and LA um, and I just felt like I really needed to get out of the city. Um, You know, it just, I like the city, but it just felt like I had been uh, living there and I'm not so much of an astrology person, but I feel like this is the most Sagittarius thing that I do of like <laughs> when I live in a space for more than like four years, I'm like, oh, wait, should I be moving? So <laughs> um, I think it was mostly that.
1: I doubt it's a horoscope thing because uh, technically, if I ask a horoscope person, I'm a Scorpio, but I also like to not live in a place more than three years. Like it's that's my threshold fourth fourth year is like something that I have to kind of like just endure you know like and I want to just leave yeah I think it's I don't know it's a horoscope thing I don't believe in that but anyways (laughs) let's continue sorry to interject
0: no I think that so that's again like I don't believe in it so much that I think that's the only reason but also there were many reasons that I felt like I need to go out and like experience more places and civic design specifically uh, doesn't have a lot of openings so uh, you know you don't see a lot of teams hiring because again it's very niche we all sort of know each other it's very interconnected community (laughs) Um, so when I saw that this team in Montgomery County was hiring uh, and Its vision was to create a more human government. It just resonated with me a lot. And there goes, you know, the whole practicality of moving across the the continent and like leaving everything. Um, (laughs) Uh,
1: But what do you prefer more? Just we'll continue this discussion. But what do you prefer more? The East or the West of America?
0: It took me leaving uh, LA to realize that I'm an LA girl. But... I love D.C.
1: I I I really love the West part of America for some reason. I
0: I didn't even know that um, I loved it. But I love D.C. for the reason that it has public transport. And, you know, I live in a rent-controlled building. It's Mm. more like a town than like a big city. I can get anywhere. Uh, I see people walking around. L.A., I didn't see (laughs) that many people walking around, so... Yeah,
1: I mean in those terms it's great. Yeah. I think for me it's more about the weather. The weather of like <laughs> I, I love sun, I love heat, I love all those things. And uh, if you like all those things, then northeast of America or north of America is like yeah, it, it you will hate it after like three days or four days. I, if I don't see sun for like more than uh, two days, I I go crazy. So yeah, yeah I, I have no
0: imagine, so. I have no attachment to sun that I know of. <laughs> so um uh, yeah I I like living here but also I'm the person who would like get iced coffees in winter so (laughs) it's that's that's the LA in me (laughs) um but yeah I I think I wanted a change and I saw an opportunity that I was like okay um it's worth exploring I was giving interviews. And honestly, the first interview that I had for this place, that very day I decided that I don't want to do jobs at all. I want to do a PhD. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I took the job and I'm still like, should I do part-time PhD or full-time PhD? So I'm still considering two years later. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just it just felt like, you know what, let's try it. Um, and my friend jokes about that, how my life is very high risk life. I just like do things and I feel like that's the theme of it. So (laughs) I just took a risk, moved here. I've been working with them for like about 21 months now. And, um, Mm -hmm. uh, the key project that I've been involved in is the human resources project, which is about, um, you know, our County, um, our County, which is Montgomery County in Maryland. Um, we have a 50% risk of retirement in the next like three to four years where employees are eligible for retirement. And like imagine 50% of your mm-hmm. government, local government just like walks out of the door. <laughs> um, so the challenge is to relook at our practices and design a hiring uh, practice and process that is more equitable and is Uh, And decreases the administrative burden on people. So when I say administrative burden is like, imagine you had to answer the same question every day uh, for like the whole week. And while it takes like one minute to answer that email, if you had to answer it like 12 times, you were essentially spending like 15 to 20 minutes answering that email. Right. So how might we decrease that administrative burden? And that's like a very small example. But you know, um, when we have processes that have less uh admin burden, they are processes that are faster, more equitable, more like, you know, they have a certain speed and like uh they have also uh hopefully more transparency built in them because there are more uh, stakeholders who understand where their role steps in and where they step out. So those are the things we are questioning. Um, There are different things that we have created. Like for instance, I learned that just how job ads are written certain words are masculine coded and others are feminine coded which means that if i'll read certain words in a job ad i'll think like oh this is not for me this is for like a man
1: you start self-selecting yourself (laughs) yes
0: exactly whereas obviously it depends on like who wrote those job ads and like what kind of language they want to use so Mm. you know we uh the first thing we created in the first uh three four months was a job guide that gives people a template and like list of words and things that they can avoid uh, but you know we now are also thinking about how to operationalize a lot of this because mm-hmm. we have 38 or 37 departments I forget because there was a new department so I forget uh, the exact number. where the numbers <laughs> changed yeah but um, 38 departments, let's say each department at an average has like three to four uh, divisions within that. So imagine mm. 38 by four uh, different kinds of hiring pra- practices and needs because everyone is different. Like firing, uh, fire and safety department won't have the same uh, hiring process as police department. They'll be similar but not same. Uh, and the positions would be different. So a mechanic that would be hired for... Uh, fire and rescue would be different than a mechanic hired for transportation department because the skill sets of the tools they're working on is different so it's i never thought i would be working in maryland on human resources challenges but that's what i'm doing right now (laughs) um yeah there are a few more projects coming in this year where i would hopefully be diversifying um my portfolio some uh some things would be capital improvements uh, program where the county gets to interact with community members and advisory boards to hear about, um, you know, where money should be invested. So uh, trying to uh, understand uh, with the... Ca- uh, capital improvements program team as to like where, uh, where they can improve their process, how they can like in, uh, increase the depth and breadth of their engagement so that they're hearing from community members. Like that will be uh, something that I'm really excited about because the more I work in this space, the more I want to be uh, with the community and in the community to uh, make government services reflect the community's needs. And that's what like sort of is civic design for me.
1: Yeah, also like uh, because in America, uh, the governance is so federal that it's so local that people have this connection with their uh, uh, local uh, representatives and That's one of the things I'm sure like you kind of encounter, which is very different than uh, how it happens here in India. Uh, Let's talk about some of the impact maybe that you have had at this county while working on the projects.
0: Yeah. So last year uh, from Jan to I would say uh, July and August or like August beginning, um, I worked on this uh, evidence and research centered um, process to create a hiring process playbook we sort of uh, looked at our, uh, you know, uh, regs and like by regs, I mean, like regulations and like other guidance that were uh, created for county staff to hire uh, and really looked at it from the perspective of uh, behavioral science and steps and like other uh, points of clarity that the staff needed, like as a hiring manager, what should I be doing? Is there like a list of things that I can check off? So we did a um, bunch of interviews. We worked with uh, nine departments to interview people and uh, learn about their needs, uh, learn about the key challenges. So at the beginning we had like a rough idea what the playbook would look like, but uh, Also, as I was talking about engaging people who are experiencing the problems more and like working with communities, in this case, the community was uh, the internal customer, people who are hiring for the county. So uh, I was working with them to uh, first unpack what the challenges are. Based on that, I drafted a few sections of the playbook that, okay, first section has to be just about the basics. That this is your role this is the timeline this is what you should do this is what you shouldn't do second section would be about xyz so when i did that i got together people for uh co-working sessions for content generation because then i created like basic uh outlines of what uh, i thought the roles were what the timeline was and then i got people to uh, react to it, edit it, add things to it to say that this is what the process looks like. Because again, in this whole you know project, I wanted to recognize that I am the newest person to this pros- hiring process, and I've not hired people. Right. I've just been hired, so I <laughs> bring a specific perspective, but mm. I don't know what are the best practices. So I want to rely on people who are closest to this challenge, and I want them to define everything that we would have in this playbook. And that's what people did. And then when mm-hmm. um, when we had uh, a skeleton of what kind of information needs to go in, then I wrote a whole document, which was, I think, like, at the start, it was 40 pages. We had, uh, I had obviously um, editing support because I'd just been, like, hearing so many things that, Half of the time, I wasn't even like making sense mm-hmm. because sentences were like in my head. <laughs> but um, apart from the editing support, we also sent the document to our recruitment staff and then asked them to review certain sections mm-hmm. because they are the people who would be giving this service to the internal county. So everything that we right. want to write, we want to make sure it aligns with people who are giving those services. Um And everyone who is engaged in the delivery of a particular service is engaged in the creation of that playbook. Uh, So after a bunch of collaboration, then, you know, we got to design and the design also happened in uh, PowerPoint because uh, our county uses Microsoft tools. So- I love
1: this part um, where uh, we talk about like, you know, (laughs) like uh, this is going to uh, burst the bubble of a lot of people this whole uh, podcast episode. Uh, especially the visual designers they kind of uh, keep on like uh, the Microsoft softwares uh, the PowerPoints Excel and key, and so on so forth so but like designing in that and having an impact and getting the results it's a it's a different like game
0: yeah it's I've been incredibly curious of like uh, you know checking my own privilege of uh the design lens that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I love when the software itself sets a threshold of this is what you can do, man. Like, this is it.
1: <laughs> Take yeah. it or leave it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: but <laughs> but that's where it starts getting interesting that you can use Illustrator and InDesign and make anything and everything look beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, because, you know, you have uh it's such they are sophisticated tools but again because they're sophisticated they're designed for designers and creative folks they're not designed for everyone no one has them yeah if someone has them they are old licenses they won't have the same feasibility that you have um people won't be able to edit them and with powerpoint it's just so easy to let people know that all the documents and things and processes that we are trying to create, they are all prototypes and they are all tests. They are not the solution. Right. Um. In my practice, I'm really trying to get away from the word solution and problem because we have challenges and we try to address them. Uh, you can't create solutions because as soon as you say solution, you think that's a silver bullet, like this will solve all the problems. Like, mm. no. First of that's all... It's more like
1: an intervention, right?
0: Yeah, so that's why like when i create this in ppt like small things like um the playbook says that the first draft was created on xyz like the saying that it's the first draft itself says that there will be a second draft mm. so you know you start uh incepting these thoughts in people that you know this needs to be edited this needs to be changed uh in time and you really start rethinking of how government systems and processes need uh, to be re-looked at a- at an interval. Right. And, you know, we are already thinking of how this might change if and when we acquire new tech for the county. So we are already thinking that, you know, our process is going to change. We're not going to retrofit this process into the tech we buy, but we're going to relook at our system and there will be a change that will be for the be- better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that's why creating things in tools that other can share the ownership Uh, makes them feel like they're part of the change and they want to change the system with it.
1: Yeah, I recently worked on a project which won't be out anytime soon. And uh, most of the deliverables, apart from like the identity assets, all of them were like uh, in Google Docs, in uh, PPT and so on because it's for a research institute i can't give more details but like yeah so uh i I, this was one of my first encounters of you know um, sending out deliverables where like you said you know the software tells you this is my limit this is all you can do but it was it is a fulfilling thing in a lot of ways because all these templates will be used by their team and they will create things so it will uh, kind of amplify the impact that it would have otherwise Uh, But at the same time, it might not make uh, it to design blogs, you know, like all of those things, which shouldn't even be a thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think what's also interesting about using these tools that are, you know, um, I mean, Canva is there, but I end up using uh, PowerPoint and like Google Slides and things like that. also, I design a lot of workshop sessions that are on Google Slides and not Miro because, again, people are making more and more, um, you know, uh, work-related things on uh, Google Slides. So, it's just easier for them to... Mm.
1: They are acquainted with the app.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, it's... Um, I, I think of how these tools help me recognize my relationship with my work, which is like my work is not just my own. My work when i'm working as a civic designer when i'm working on social impact uh um artifacts and processes and projects my work is shared by others um and for that reason i need a healthy detachment uh from it mm. i cannot mm. be the sole owner i cannot be the sole editor and it need i need to have that amount of uh, positionality to say that i'm letting go of my work um and it's in other people's hands. So like with this playbook also, just like, here's a closeout memo, here are the files, here's how you can track Mm. it, Uh, like the benefits of this. But I've given the work back and I'm obviously there to support uh, the teams that I'm working for, but again, uh, don't count on me to make all the changes because it's your product and like that ownership is really important when we and accountability is really important when we talk about changing systems because mm-hmm. systems cannot be changed by just one person and for that matter uh, you know I think design thinking is a tool, Um, design methods and practice is a tool, Um, everything is a tool and we have to recognize as design practitioners of what comes in where and how we use it in our practice.
1: Right. When we decided to record this podcast, I found this article which I kind of sent out to you, which is about uh, criticism of design thinking, really well-written criticism. I'll add a link to that article in the podcast notes. Uh, and i was also skeptic of you know thinking as a a service you know design thinking as a service till recently i would say what are your opinions on like criticism for design thinking
0: yeah i think (laughs) design thinking is one of the words that um makes me angry and i want to just like walk on (laughs) um
1: please explain
0: yeah (laughs) yeah um when you work in local government, there are a lot of words that make you angry. So, But design <laughs> thinking is just generally in life, it makes me angry. And I think um, there are s- specific bits of it that make me uncomfortable, which then makes me angry is like, first of all, um, you know, talking about the word empathy, like empathy as a step. I just cannot stand that because I think empathy is a virtue that people either have or they don't have to say that oh i'm gonna empathize is such a um you know colonial perspective of like oh i have all this like extra power that i can like lend to you and like empower you it's just i cannot stand that um and you know i have an example more specifically you are like, uh, the time that I was working with unhoused neighbors, and remember, I was talking about the workshops and stuff we did, in that, um, one of the facilitators asked, like, uh, so could, would you describe your needs? And the, one of the people who have been unhoused said, what are your needs? My needs are exactly same as your needs. I need a place to live. I need safe, like, neighborhood. I need drinking portable water. Um, and, you know, that really checked me on my privilege that, and often when people are working with unhoused uh, neighbors or people who have in, um, uh, experienced homelessness, they would ask them, what are your needs? As if their needs are different than, you know, our needs, yeah. because they yeah. are humans too. Yeah. And that's where I think empathy gets the uh, process really wrong, because, you can't just
1: It's also a savior complex, right? Yes. Like yes. that people come with.
0: Yeah. They think they can like step into a problem, be there for two months shadowing someone and they like know everything. Which is why like I actually pulled out a bit from that article which says that um I was like, you didn't talk to anyone who works in the school in a school, did you? They were not contextualized in the problem at all. Um it's in the article and I think that summarizes the issue of design thinking so well because um, mm-hmm. people, because they are checking boxes of like, oh yeah, we empathized, we did this, we did that. They are not really critically thinking of how they can learn from people who are closest and like uh, who are experiencing the challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, they think that they can design for them. So I think design thinking, especially the Western school of... Uh, Uh, You know, uh, formalizing design thinking really uh, believes that designers can step in and uh, give you solutions. And that puts designers at a higher pedestal, which I don't think we are. Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. also like a lot of these design thinking books are written by men who are from privileged uh, European countries so I as a woman of color feel offended by just that that like how can you tell me when you don't even understand the complexity of my existence as to what design how design thinking can uh, improve my life and you know my processes and my system so that, that it's just so emotional but again I do use it as a tool because I don't think it's the gospel truth or it's the bible i don't think it's that i think there are bits of it that i can teach my students when i'm teaching them classes because that's what the industry talks about the industry would question them on like oh you don't have personas you don't have journey maps so i need to tell my students how to create them but also i need to teach my students as to how to critically view these practices so there's right a different lens as to how i see it um and not let design thinking govern me rather i govern design thinking as a tool in my practice
1: in that article they have also mentioned this was my favorite line that execution has always been the sticky wicket for design thinking and which has been one of my personal critique uh, with design thinking as a discipline that we don't see results sometimes and it's just like becomes innovation theater rather than um, actual you know impact yeah that is to be executed don't you feel so
0: yeah I think that is so correct and I also love that they talk to people like Lily Irani and Sid Harrell in this article because I've been following their work and they are great um, and in this article uh, uh, Sid Harrell has a specific piece that says that the biggest piece of the design problem in civic tech is not generating new ideas, but figuring out how to implement and pay for them. And I think that's pretty crucial as a civic designer to use these tools to get to the root cause of a certain problem, to understand, is it a process problem? Is it a tech problem? Is it Uh, you know, people problem, often, I don't think it's (laughs) a people problem. But, you know, really questioning what kind of problem it is. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And really understanding the why nature of uh, the issues that we are Working on, but also figuring out how to support them short term, long term, and how to get funding for it, yeah. and how to um, get the staff to feel the uh, ownership of uh, the tools that we are building with them. Right, and it's definitely very different when you know, um, not to like hate on it, but like if steps in and steps out for like a oh, year into a problem, let's say in Montgomery County. Uh, That will be one solution, but I've been working on hiring with Montgomery County for 21 months, so I'm not just giving recommendations to them, Um, and I am, like, exclusively not giving recommendations, and I'm trying to give them tools to... Uh, improve their process Mm -hmm. which is where i think design thinking when we look at it from a commercial lens it is more about recommendations that i'm telling you you can do this Mm -hmm. but i often don't uh, as a client and as the person experiencing the problem don't have the tools to understand how to follow up with those recommendations
1: that makes sense i think uh, you just summed it up like the entire thing (laughs) <laughs> so yeah. uh the last question now on this podcast that i would like to you to tell us is do you think design will find its importance in indian model of government ever i know of one institute in india which is kind of trying to do this uh work not in design but in general like policy which is takshashila foundation i'm sure you're familiar with them uh but what are your opinions on it
0: yeah i feel so uh ignorant and also so lost when we talk about uh, design civic design and policy uh, design in um, Indian space because as I said I've not been <laughs> to India in four years and uh, four years have done a lot of change in my thinking as I view design and design practice my own practice Uh, my idealist view was that I would like live here for a couple of years and be back in India. So technically, I should have been back in India (laughs) as of now. Um, But I think uh, the more time I spend away from India, the less I'm able to imagine as to how this kind of design, uh, design processes and practice can come into the systems within India. And even as a person who's been part of the system through her parents, like, secondhand experienced it, mm, I mm. still feel incredibly lost as to, like, where I can come in. But obviously, the my love for complex challenges and my love for, like, really digging and, like, being, like, happy in grey spaces uh, comes from being a Indian, like, you know, it, it is in my roots to really... <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's a very complex society. I think if you ever work for the government of India, it's going to be one of the most complex works, maybe.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I also laugh about that, how I do feel like a masochist that I get happiness from just like this. uh, uh, You know, my colleague was saying the other day, uh, being a glutton for punishment, like I just Hmm. like thriving in that state of like Hmm. uh, unpacking challenges. So I know I would like it, but I just don't know where it would come in right now. Right. And I have a trip coming up in India and I really want to take that. I'm taking a whole month off to really, you know, uh, seep into what India like right now. Um, it's going
1: to be very different. Yeah. Uh, like from your experience four years back, it's like India is changing so fast, uh, for good, for bad, all those things. Uh, but I, I don't know about... Uh, civic design being part of uh, government in India but I would definitely like to design identity visual identities for uh, government of India I don't know if uh, any podcast listener has those uh, leads do let me know I'm just putting it out there
0: <laughs> yeah I would love to also redesign the IRCTC website <laughs> I love trains but that website is crazy <laughs> Um and yeah, I think uh, some of my visit is also to just um, if anyone in India is wondering about what civic design is, I'll be there whole of April if they want to talk to me. Uh, I don't know when the podcast is coming out. So you can like edit it, however. Um, but um, yeah, I also would like to see where I can step in and where uh, I'm not needed because my new practice has taught me to just uh you know come into spaces where you are welcome where people need you and don't like interject uh because you know um as designers we look at menus to like boards and go like oh the kerning is off here the like this is wrong that's wrong and I've just learned to not do that. So I really want to assess as to like where uh, my role could be uh, you know reused in India and what format and uh, if I should finally come back and just be there.
1: Nidhi thanks for being on the podcast it was amazing having you here.
0: Thank you so much. I uh, I feel like we just talked so much. Um, I vaguely have <laughs> recollections of what I said, so I'm looking forward to hearing what <laughs> I um, But I am so grateful for you to invite me because I get this question a lot of what is civic design. Um, I don't often have the time to um, <laughs> actually sit down and talk about it. Um, but I'm so uh, appreciative of the fact that you were so patient (laughs) with me and my schedule. So thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. And now people will know what Safe Design is. If you find conversations like this valuable and want to help me bring you more content like this, There are many ways you can support this podcast. You can leave a review on the platform you're listening to this podcast on. You can tell a friend about it, or you can also share this podcast on social media. You can also extend a financial support. To know more about that, visit designthisway.com. Please know that I really appreciate your support. And uh, if you have any comments, feedback, suggestion, feel free to get in touch with me on social media or email. You can get my email and social media links uh, on my website, www.kawal.co. In my next episode, I have another interesting guest for you. So see you soon.